Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our gracious, eternal Father, <clears throat> we humbly ask of you now, as we reopen your holy scriptures, to hear them proclaimed, that they will be proclaimed by the convincing power of the Holy Spirit and heard and received by the selfsame power. We therefore ask of you, Holy Father, that your word will run unencumbered, unhindered. It will run and be glorified this day. These things we pray for the sake of Christ Jesus our Lord. In his name, amen. I'll invite you to take the word of God and let's turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. So the month of October in Reformed churches, whether they be Baptist or Presbyterian, the month of October is Reformation Month. And so one thing that I like to do, that I try to do every October, is to preach on the Lord's Day mornings on reformational themes. And so this morning, we will be looking at two great reformational themes that were recovered in the 16th century by the Protestant reformers regarding the bondage of the will and the sovereign grace of God in salvation. But we will see this from John chapter 6, and we're going to begin reading at verse 35 and reading to verse 47, 35 to 47 of John chapter 6. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven. Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they all will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And so reads the infallible, 
inerrant, sufficient, eternal word of the living God. When we contemplate the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, we cannot speak of this mammoth historical movement without beginning with its primal leader, Martin Luther. For 27 years following his conversion to Christ in 1518, Luther would be at pains for the recovery of the gospel. This would be by his translation of the Bible in the German language, his influence as a Bible professor, pastor, and mentor for the next generation, and certainly by his incessant labors in preaching God's word, which was given in some 6,000 sermons over this period. But in addition to all these exerted efforts, Luther's greatest labors for gospel recovery came by way of his writings and published works. And for Luther himself, there was no book he prized and revered more from his own pen than his forceful theological reply to the famed Dutch humanist Desiderius Erasmus. Luther entitled this work De Servo Arbitrio, which is Latin, translated meaning on the enslaved will. We know this book by its more popular title, The Bondage of the Will. Concerning this book, Luther said it should be preserved along with his small catechism while the rest of his books could be burned. What made this book so relevant for the Protestant Reformation and what sustains its relevance for our own times as well is that it expounds the nature of salvation as it relates to human freedom. Erasmus, like many in the church today, would not concede that salvation was by grace alone. Man must play some part and make some contribution to salvation, however small it may be. And to Erasmus, man's contribution was in his freedom to make the final decision as to whether God would save him or not. In other words, though man was a sinner, nevertheless his sinfulness did not impair his ability to apply himself to those things which would lead to salvation. Erasmus thus believed that the power for salvation resided in man's will, not God's will. Luther, however, castigated this doctrine Erasmus promoted as a pure fiction, since it attached properties to man's will that are simply not there. Luther argued that what we must apprehend is the only thing man is truly free to do is build houses, milk cows, and sin. In fact, Luther contended that no sinner left to himself would ever strive after God since they are completely ignorant of him, paying him no regard, bound up in a corrupt, sinful nature. This means then, as Luther rightly maintained, free will without God's grace is not free at all, but the permanent prisoner and bond slave of evil since it cannot turn itself to good. So rather than celebrating human freedom like Erasmus, Luther declared that man's freedom as a sinner only reveals his desperation and need to be saved. Therefore, since man in his sin has no power in himself to do any good that would merit salvation, then he must be exclusively dependent on God's grace alone, in Christ alone, if he would ever be redeemed. Well, 
this stand Martin Luther took for man's inability to save himself, combined with his exclusive need for God alone to save him, was a mere echo of what Luther had already discovered as he searched God's word to understand the truth of God's way of salvation. In fact, one of the key passages of Scripture which helped Luther see both the bondage of the will and the sovereignty of God's grace was where our study this morning is taking us, which is John chapter 6, verses 41 through 47. This portion of John 6 finds us in what has been a discourse Jesus has been laboring to give to a large gathering of Jews off the shore of Galilee near Capernaum. Following the reception of Jesus' miracle-working power, these Jews proved themselves as nothing but materialistic unbelievers since they only saw Jesus as a consumer savior rather than the promised Messiah. Jesus, therefore, pressed upon these Jews the truth of who he was and called them to turn to him in faith and receive eternal life. But their response to this magnanimous offer of redemption was soured in rank unbelief. And our Lord did not deny this, but affirmed it when he said to them in verse 36, you have seen me and yet do not believe. You have seen me and yet do not believe. Let's think for a moment about just how staggering this charge really is. There they were in the physical presence of the eternal Son of God incarnate. They have witnessed firsthand his miracle-working power. They have heard his audible voice call them to salvation by faith in him. And yet, in his physical presence, they remain unbelievers. But how does Jesus respond to their unbelief? Is, is he discouraged? Is he disheartened? Is he ready to throw in the towel and give up and declare his mission over? No. Oh no, not at all. Instead, what our Lord begins to say to these Jews, starting in verse 37, is essentially this. Regardless of your unbelief, I will have believers. That's the essence of what he says. Regardless of your unbelief, I will have believers. And, and how is it that Jesus will have believers? Well, in verse 37, our Lord declares emphatically, all that the Father gives me will do what? Will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. From this single statement, Jesus communicates three principal salvific Facts. First, there are a people the Father gives to the Son. Second, these people given by the Father will believe on the Son. And third, these people given by the Father to the Son will be kept forever by the Son. Now, to add greater assurance to the truth that those whom the Father gives to His Son will not only believe but remain believers, Jesus then proceeds in verses 38 to 40 to underscore this by declaring first that it is the Father's will that no one will be lost who he has given to the Son. Second, it is the Father's will that all who die as believers will be raised up on the last day by the Son. And then third, it is the Father's will that only those who believe on the Son will have eternal life. 
So then from verses 37 to 40, Jesus lays down the fact that by God's will and purpose, a people have been chosen to be given to God's Son who will be saved and kept saved for eternity. But at this point, one has to ask the question, well, how did the Jews respond to this? Answering this question brings us now to our study in John 6, 41 through 47. From this passage, I want us to see three things. The complaint, the comeback, and the comfort. The complaint, the comeback, and the comfort. Beginning first, let's consider the complaint. Reading verses 41 and 42. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? These two verses clearly answer our leading question as to how the Jews responded to what Jesus has said recorded in verses 37 and 40. They were neither impressed nor convinced in all our Lord had said, but John tells us they just grumbled. They grumbled. This verb translated grumbled is the translation of a Greek term which means to murmur or complain. It indicates the rumbling disagreement and opposition which people are expressing under their breath to whatever it is being taught. Used here in what's called the imperfect tense, John is revealing how this murmuring has been the ongoing reaction of the Jews since Jesus began teaching. But what specifically are they murmuring about? In this specific instance, it has to do with Jesus' claims to deity. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? In the first place, it must be said, the Jews were not confused as to who Jesus was claiming to be. The fact that they were identifying him as the son of Joseph over against what he said concerning himself, I have come down from heaven, this clearly shows they were quite right in what they understood Jesus to say as to his, as to his divinity due to where he comes from, namely heaven. But in the second place, since this claim Jesus made was not received but rejected by the Jews and that with contempt, this only reveals more their sinful depravity manifested in such brazen unbelief. I describe their unbelief as brazen since some of them were actually asserting that they know exactly who Jesus really is. Regardless of all the evidence they have of him thus far by his miracle working power and unparalleled teaching, yet they still reduce him in their minds to nothing more than a carpenter's son from Nazareth. There's no way the promised Messiah would be a lowly Nazarene who descended from abject poverty. This is the implication of their words. Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose, whose father and mother we know? There's a sneer. There's a mockery in their words. It's, it's brazen. It's arrogant. 
Their pride refused to believe that such a one like this was truly sent from God, that he was God's eternal son, God's anointed one, Mashiach, the Messiah. But as J.C. Ryle noted in this regard, it is human nature showing itself in true colors. That is fallen human nature. 1 Corinthians 1.18 tells us that the gospel of Jesus Christ is foolishness to all unbelievers. It makes no sense to man in his sin. So in this case with the Jews, had Jesus come in the way they expected and anticipated the Messiah to appear as a conquering king bestowing wealth and honors on Israel with mighty armies in his train, had God's Son appeared in his first advent like this, then the Jews would have quickly received him. But to come as one who is humble, suffering, and would be crucified? 1 Corinthians one twenty three says, this is nothing but a stumbling block to Jews. A crucified Messiah is a scandal to Jewish pride. The truth is, man in his sin imagines what he wants God to be like and therefore hates the truth of who God really is because it doesn't agree with his depraved presuppositions. So when he faces the true Christ, the only way of salvation in the gospel, he revolts against it rather than receiving it with joy. Such is the case here with the Jews. Such is the root of all their complaining and murmuring. But how does Jesus respond to this? Well, answering this question moves us to our next major point. From the complaint, let's now look at the comeback. Reading verses 43 to 45, Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. The reply Jesus gives is remarkable to say the least. He doesn't answer the particulars of their complaint because there's something far more grave and problematic at work here. Something they don't understand and they can't even see. It's, it's what is behind their rejection of God's Son that, that our Lord addresses by making it clear that coming to believe on Him is a purely supernatural work. In the first place, Jesus exposes their moral inability. He exposes their moral inability. Our Lord says, no one can come to me. The single statement leaves no exception. No one is a universal negative. So there is no one in response to this statement who can say or claim, well, now that doesn't apply to me. Well, actually, it applies to us all. But what is it? What is the application? Well, look at what our Lord says. No one can do what? Come to me. 
The verb translated can comes from a Greek term that means ability. And, and since this verb is connected to the universal negative of no one, then Jesus is stating in the clearest possible terms that there is something which no one is able to do. Well, what is it? The universal inability of man is that he cannot come to Christ. He cannot come to Christ. Jesus says, no one can come to me. So then all people, without exception, are infected with a moral inability as a result of their fallen condition due to sin. Now, the reason we describe this as a moral inability is because the problem is not physical, but spiritual. Wherein the impotence Jesus is, re is revealing lies in man's will. A sinner cannot come to Christ because he will not come to Christ. Listen to that again. A sinner cannot come to Christ because he will not come to Christ. What man as a sinner wants, what he wills, is not Christ, but his sin. As Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, 19 and 20, men love the darkness and hate the light, therefore they do not come to the light. So let's understand this all-important doctrine that we're being taught here in John 6, 44. Listen closely. Man's will, his ability to choose, is determined by whatever his nature is. And since man's nature is sinful then every choice he makes, every desire he has, will never be for Jesus Christ, but in rejection of him. This means that man as a sinner does not want Jesus to save him and therefore will not come to him for salvation. His will to choose is controlled and corrupted by his sinful nature. This is why Romans 3.11 says there is no one who seeks after God. The sinfulness of man directs his desires away from God, whereby he never seeks after God in a saving way. Elaborating on this truth, A.W. Pink wrote the following. The condition of the natural man is altogether beyond human repair. To talk about exerting the will is to ignore the state of the man behind the will. Man's will has not escaped the general wreckage of his nature. When man fell, every part of his being was affected. Just as truly as the sinner's heart is estranged from God and his understanding darkened, so is his will enslaved by sin. To predicate the freedom of the will is to deny that man is totally depraved. To say that man has the power within himself to either reject or accept Christ is to repudiate the fact that he is the captive of the devil. So Jesus says then, of all the human race, no one can come to me. There is a moral inability 
in all of us, by nature, whereby we'll never, never want to come to Jesus Christ for salvation. The only hope any sinner has for salvation, therefore, is found outside of who he is and what he is able to do. And saying this leads us to consider the next principle truth taught here in John 6.44. Jesus explains the only way anyone can come to him. Read it again, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. How will anyone ever come to Christ for salvation since no one is able to do so of their own will? Here's where Jesus reveals that coming to him is a supernatural action. No one can come to me unless, that's the necessary condition, unless, unless what? The Father who sent me draws him. The only way any sinner can come savingly to Jesus Christ is if God the Father draws him. Now, what does this mean? What does this mean, this drawing? Well, the verb translated draws is a Greek word which carries the idea of compelling by a superior force. That's the actual meaning of that Greek term. Compelling by a superior force. This is how we see this very same Greek word used in other parts of the New Testament. For instance, in John 18, verse 10, it is used to describe Peter drawing his sword from its scabbard. In John 21, in verse 8, it is used to describe the disciples dragging their net full of fish. In Acts 16, verse 19, the same Greek word is used to describe the dragging of Paul and Silas by the civil authorities. So the essential meaning of this word then is to be compelled by a superior force. And there is also implied in this word the sense of resistance by what is being compelled. But now the question comes, so does this mean that God violates the sinner's will, dragging him to the Savior by outward force? Is conversion to Christ like a, like a man who is arrested in his home, placed in handcuffs, and dragged into the police car? Is this how we understand John 6, about God the Father drawing us to Christ? Well, the answer, of course, to such a question is absolutely not. Absolutely not. God's Word contains no examples of conversion as God dragging sinners into His kingdom against their will. Rather, this supernatural drawing or compelling force by God the Father bringing sinners savingly to Jesus Christ is by an inward working of grace whereby God changes the heart, setting their will free to follow after Christ. Let me say it another way. God gives the sinner a new want to. 
God gives the sinner a new want to. Whereas before their conversion, they did not want Christ, they did not want to be saved. But now, now, by God's compelling omnipotent grace, they want to come to Christ and be saved. Their want to has been changed. So God doesn't violate the sinner's will, but he sets the will free by changing his heart. It's what Ezekiel 36, 26 describes as God removing the heart of stone and replacing it with the heart of flesh. This is how God the Father draws the sinner to Christ. But beloved, make no mistake. This drawing to Christ is certain and sure. It will not fail to produce what God the Father has intended it to produce, which is true conversion to Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus says back in John 6, 37, all, the all that the Father gives me will come to me. There's no, there's no contingency there. It's not if, it's not maybe, they might, it's possible. Maybe there's a 90% chance they'll come. No. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. They will come. Every sinner the Father has chosen to save, he gives to his Son, and at the appointed time, each of these elect sinners will be effectually drawn to Christ. And being drawn to Christ, they'll never be lost by Christ. Jesus will not cast them away because he will not lose a single one of them as he promises in verses 37 and 39. Moreover, he will raise them up on the last day as he assures us in verses 39, 40 and right here in verse 44. But to add one more layer to what it means to be drawn to Christ by the Father, look at what Jesus says in verse 45. He says, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Quoting here from Isaiah 54 in verse 13, Jesus simply restates the truth of verse 44 in different terms. Those who come to Jesus for salvation do so because they are supernaturally and effectually instructed by the Father. To be drawn by the Father to Christ is to be taught by the Father the way of salvation which comes by means of God's word proclaimed. The same truth is what we read in Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by what? Hearing, right? Hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And that word of Christ is the rhema the preached, the spoken word of Christ. In other words, gospel preaching. So through the faithful proclamation of the gospel, those whom the Father has given to Christ, he illuminates and gives a supernatural understanding to the way of salvation, which results in their conversion to Christ. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So while man in sin 
will not come to Christ because of his sinful nature that will always say no to Jesus. Always. Yet God the Father has chosen a people to save by giving them to his Son, and these chosen sinners will come, they will come to saving faith in Jesus Christ by the compelling, omnipotent, drawing power of the Father. This then is the remarkable truth Jesus reveals to these unbelieving Jews. And, and it is the truth God's word impresses on all sinners everywhere. Conversion to Christ is a supernatural work that relies on God's power alone. That is the great truth of John 6, 44 and 45. But moving to our last major point here in John 6, let's look and consider the comfort. The comfort. Reading verses 46 and 47, our Lord continues and says, Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he, was, he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. In these final two verses, Jesus reminds us that he alone is our mediator to the Father. And by believing in him, therefore, we will have eternal life. So then no one can know the Father or be taught by the Father apart from the Son, since no one has seen the Father except he who is from God, namely God's only Son, Jesus Christ the Lord. So then whoever... Whoever believes in Christ has eternal life, which as John 17, 3 reveals, is knowing the one, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And this gospel truth, beloved, this is our comfort. This is our comfort. This is our hope. That, that despite our moral inability as sinners, whereby we will, we will not ever come to Christ on our own, Yet God the Father has chosen a people he's given to his Son, and these people he draws to his Son, wherein they receive eternal life, the fruit of which is their believing on Jesus Christ for salvation. So, in concluding this study of John 6, 41-47, the question that this passage impresses me to ask you is this. Has God the Father drawn you to Jesus Christ? Has God the Father drawn you to Jesus Christ? Is there a compelling drive in you to flee from your sins and run to Christ by faith, trusting Him alone to save you, from the condemnation your sins deserve. Do you know that as your personal, true experience? And is there a compelling drive in you to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord, to live your life for His glory, obeying His word, denying yourself, and making much of Him as the one who the Scripture tells us is your life? Is this how you know Jesus Christ experientially? 
He's not only your Savior, but He's your Master. He's your King. His Word has the final say in your life. Is that true of you? Is that true of you? Has God the Father drawn you to Jesus Christ? Now, let's remember something here. Context, context, context. These words in John 6, 44 through 47 were spoken by Jesus to who? Unbelievers. Unbelievers. Is that shocking? <laughs> One theologian said many years ago that the doctrine of election is the family secret of God's people. Well, then why did Jesus teach this doctrine to unbelievers? He spoke these words to... Our Lord's intention was not to dash their hopes of ever being redeemed, but pointing them to the only hope they could possibly have for real redemption by God. Only, only by the Father drawing you to the Son will you be saved. Only. And so I would say to any of you here today, in this regard, and out of this context, cry out to God to compel you to draw you savingly to Jesus Christ if you don't have this assurance. Call upon Him and do so now. Do so now, believing, trusting, his infallible, inerrant word. Because this is our hope. And this is our only certainty of true salvation. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what a What an awesome, awe-inspiring, supernatural work is your redeeming grace. That you have chosen even before the foundation of the world to send to those sinners that you elected, Holy Father out of Adam's fallen race, and in eternal love, covenantal love you gave to your Son as a gift of love. Holy Father, let us as Christians not lose sight of what a marvelous work this is, that is our redemption in the Lord Jesus. That it was not a redemption that was planned in time and history, even something given as an afterthought, but it was that which you 
had eternally purposed from, from before the foundation of the world. A covenant made between you, Father, and the Lord Jesus, your Son, and the Holy Spirit. A covenant of redemption that would come to pass in time and history by the advent of your Son, the Lord Jesus, solidifying and ratifying this covenant by his blood and righteousness and the Holy Spirit working to apply that blessed covenant to all those chosen from before the foundation of the world. To be redeemed. Heavenly Father, let us as your people today not lose sight of such a glorious truth that has been shown to us this morning with such clarity from your holy word. And furthermore, Lord, let us not see, let us not see this truth as that which only believers can hear. But as we have been reminded at the end, our Lord Jesus spoke these words to unbelievers as a means of evangelizing them. And so, Father, will you give us the grace as your people to even use this great doctrine of your electing grace as a means of evangelizing the lost. Reminding unbelievers, even as we have been reminded and continue to be reminded as believers, that apart from your sovereign, omnipotent grace, none of us has hope of salvation at all. It is not in man to save himself. It is only in you, Holy Father, through the mediating work of your Holy Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and by the power of the blessed spirit that sinners are truly saved. We thank you for these things. For the sake of our Lord Jesus, in his name we pray. Amen.